Hello and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies today. We're talking about Wet Hot American Summer. I am so excited to share this conversation with you. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall, and we'll be joined by Candace Hopper to talk about this fabulous movie and, uh, you know, summer, summer vibes in this episode. But first, I want to let you know that You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible with your support Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. You got bonus episodes over there. We just released uh, an episode about who framed Roger Rabbit over on Patreon. I think you'll like it. We appreciate everything that you do to make this show possible. Thank you so much for everything you do, Patreon supporters. You are good is also made possible with support. By Knack Factory. Knack Factory is a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Nashville, Tennessee, and Portland, Maine, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you ever need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. And we release playlists that accompany every episode. So if you're looking for that sort of thing, uh, music inspired by the conversation, music inspired by the movie, uh, you can find that in the show notes. You can listen to the songs that come into our brains when we think about Wet Hot American Summer. Wet Hot American Summer is a 2001 American satirical comedy film directed by David Wayne from a screenplay written by Wayne and Michael Showalter. The film features an ensemble cast including Janine Garofalo, David Hyde Pierce, Molly Shannon, Paul Rudd, Christopher Maloney, Michael Showalter, Elizabeth Banks, Ken Marino, (laughs) Michael Ian Black, Bradley Cooper, and his film debut, Amy Poehler, Zach Worth, and 80 Miles. It is rich and funny folks and uh folks that people didn't really know about at the time and now many of these people are people who are uh a-listers in one way or another you know after we recorded this episode i heard a great interview with david wayne on the last laugh podcast he was talking about wet hot american summer and uh his experience making the movie that interview is a lot of fun if you're looking for a follow-up about the movie from the filmmaker it's well worth listening to i didn't fully realize i think that when this came out and it bombed it made things real hard (laughs) for david wayne and michael showalter for you know somewhere between five and ten years and uh it was a fascinating interview fascinating interview about like what it meant for them at the time, what it means for them now, what it means that it now has like a substantial following, what it was like to be on set and just be on a nonstop party (laughs) with all these people, how Christopher Maloney was like the older guy and just like needed to get some sleep, (laughs) but everyone was partying too hard. It was, again, it's very well worth the listen. If this is a favorite movie of yours, check out the Last Laugh interview with David Wayne. All right. I think that's all you need to know before we talk about Wet Hot American Summer. Thank you so much for being here. Follow us on social if you're not already. We appreciate that you're doing this with us. And you, my friend, are good. Thanks so much. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. The phone, the phone. Where's the fucking phone? Uh, I'm excited. We're talking about Wet Hot American Summer, and we are talking about it with our fabulous, fantastic, wonderful friend, Candace Opper. Hello, Candace. Hello, Alex. How's it going? 
It's great because Sarah is here. She's in my home. She's in your home. The call is coming from inside the house. I know. It's true. <laughs> She's two rooms away from me. It's been a joyous 48 hours and I get her for a whole week. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes. I'm thrilled. And we're going to see the new Jurassic whatever movie. Yeah. Despite the rising cost of everything, dinosaurs are like getting cheaper by the movie. So I'm excited <laughs> yeah. to see what they cost in this one. I bet you can get a dinosaur for like a thousand bucks. Yeah. Maybe it just like comes with a happy meal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to cover Wet Hot American Summer, which we're talking about. It's going to be interesting because like the whole basis of this show is talking about feelings through talking about movies. And this is like a movie that I don't know. I can't wait to talk about all this. I feel like Candace is the perfect person to talk about this with because the Mm -hmm. state is such a foundational thing to my life. And I imagine the state was a foundational thing to Candace's life. Yes, 100%. Yeah. We're going to talk about all that. But also, this is a movie that like manages to touch little to no feelings throughout it while being about a thing that is like foundational and seminal for anyone who is related to it being a camp experience of some sort. Mm. So I'm I'm really excited. I can't imagine a better group of people to talk about this unless we all went to like Jewish sleepaway camp at some point. I wish. But, you know, I did not have that luxury. But also like I feel like the process of making this movie was its own sleepaway camp totally. and I feel like, you know, without getting too far ahead like this is in one of our like favorite feelings areas which is like friends having a good time together totally and also like what it functions as mechanically like people who love wet hot american summer have at least 200 to 300 quotable lines (laughs) that become a shorthand Mm -hmm. for knowing who your people are yes yeah so yeah there's a lot that's going on here i can't wait to talk about it but first Mm -hmm. sarah marshall yes you got a little topo in front of you Are you hydrated and prepared to explain to our dear listener what this movie is? So I'm going to do something unusual today because I have seen this movie three times in my life. The third time being last night and Candace has seen it. Many. Many. (laughs) (laughs) This movie is so hard to summarize because like what I'll say about it is that like it's made entirely of good parts, (laughs) right? It's like it's made entirely of moments practically. I don't know. It's kind of its own unique thing. So I'm going to ask Candace to do the top of the show explanation. Okay. I'll do my best here. I have seen this movie many, many times. <laughs> it was pivotal in my young adulthood and coming of age. So it feels very close to home. And you're so correct about the um, like 200 to 300 quotable lines. Like as, we, as Sarah and I were re- rewatching it last night, I was like, this has to be in my like top three most quoted movies of all time. <laughs> like every two and a half minutes, there was a line that I was like, yeah, I say that like twice a week, you know? <laughs> this is your Ocean's Eleven. This is what Ocean's Eleven is to Patrick. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a great household. So Wet Hot American Summer takes place in 1981 on August 18th, I believe is the date. Ooh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Day. Oh, my God. That's so funny. wow. (laughs) So go to Maine on August 18th. I wonder if that was planned or not. It's got to be a conscious nod. It has to be. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so it takes place at a summer camp in Maine, in Waterville, Maine. I don't know. Is that a real town, Alex? It is. It's where Colby College is based. Oh, okay. It is the last day of camp. And so the movie follows 
several people throughout this day, mostly the camp counselors, which are played by a cast of amazing actors, many of whom went on to be incredibly famous. Like one uh, is Bradley Cooper, who, mm. and we were just talking about this last night. I had definitely not seen Bradley Cooper in anything before this. Was he in anything before this? I don't think so. I think this was his first movie. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, I think his like launch into pop culture was the hangover. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Which pairs interestingly with A Star is Born. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, we've got Bradley Cooper, Paul Rudd, Janine Garofalo, all playing camp counselors, Elizabeth Banks, Molly Shannon, a lot of people who were famous or would become more famous. And then also a huge cast of characters from... MTV's The State, which was very familiar to me. I watched that growing up, and that was um, probably why I saw this movie in the first place. So we've got these camp counselors. They're all played by actors who are in their 20s or older, and they're supposed to be playing like 16 and 17-year-olds, which is already like baseline hilarious. (laughs) And on this last day of camp, there's this energy that like you have to, you know, make all your romance happen and make the day really special. And there's some like romances unfolding. I feel like this is the first time I've done a synopsis. So I'm like, I don't want to include too much information. (laughs) I want to include just enough. It's also, it's hard to summarize because like how much does the plot matter in compared to other movies? David Wayne said that he was going for Days to Confused as like a plot goes where it's just like, it's a day where a lot of things happen. Yes. Yeah. That would be a great way to summarize it. So there's some romances unfolding that kind of drive the plot forward. Also, there's a big talent show that everyone is preparing for that night that helps drive the plot forward. And there is also a renegade piece of Skylab <laughs> that is heading toward the camp <laughs> that they're attempting to <laughs> redirect, which also <laughs> drives the plot forward. <laughs> which you kind of forget about until it's happening and yes. then you're like oh yeah the energy is different now <laughs> yes yes literally <laughs> the energy in the atmosphere <laughs> and i think what makes this movie really funny is that the children who are staying at this very jewish summer camp who are all maybe between the ages of like 11 and 13 or 14 years old i would say they're all very mature and they're all way more mature than all of the counselors who work (laughs) at the camp. And so that creates this really funny tension between the two groups. And also, you get the sense watching this that it was heavily improvised. (laughs) You know, which which makes it so joyous. And like, we were looking at the IMDB earlier, and it's really funny to look at the page that has like this long list of continuity errors and factual errors and all these things. And it's like, yeah, that was pretty intentional on their part. I'm mm. sure like that that was part of the joy of making this film and part of the fun of it. And you really get the sense that these actors like absolutely love each other. And mm-hmm. like the infrastructure of this film is so visible in the making of the film. Mm-hmm. Like there's mm-hmm. even parts where actors are obviously laughing at what's going on in the scene, <laughs> like <laughs> laughing at what's happening. And it's like, in other movies, you would think that that was a sign that it was like a shoddily made movie. And in a way, it was. It was super low budget. But I think in this sense, it really creates this like sense of joy and camaraderie and, and love between these actors mm-hmm. just figuring out as they go. Yeah. You don't need to know a whole lot about it. Totally. Right. 
it's an experience. Exactly. Yes. That's great. It's the last day at camp. A lot of things come together in the end. It's a journey on the way. Yes. Yeah. And it's super fun. That's a good one <laughs> sentence. And an example of like making what you have work for the story you're telling, I think, is like, so we have a plot. I think it's, this is maybe to me like the funniest single kind of story that unfolds within it where Victor and Neil, two counselors, have to take a cabin of kids rafting. <laughs> and Victor, who's like, talks a big talk and then admits finally that he's actually a virgin, has the chance to have sex with Abby, who's one of the camp hotties, his fellow counselor, but it's going to be an overnight raft trip. So like they get out on the water and he's like, no, I'm going, I'm going now. And so they have this like foot and motorcycle chase between him and Neil played by Jolo Trulio, who I think I remember reading something where he said he had like negative knowledge of motorcycles when they filmed this. So they have like a very obvious like stunt performer. It's <laughs> so good. Dude. His like face is built into his neck. And they use that. They, they're like, this is really it's funny. So funny. <laughs> yes. And, and so like there's a thing late in the movie where he gets back to the camp and like this guy who's obviously someone else in a very different looking wig like comes up on the motorcycle and like slowly dismounts so you have a chance to get a good look at him and then Janine Garofalo comes out she's like what's up Neil and it like pans over to her and then pans back to him and it's Jolo Trulio again and it's like it's just such a great example of like look at what resources you have and like use that and lean into that and like if you have no budget then like it's funny to have no budget like find the humor in that and it's just it's it feels like as the audience you're invited into this like in joke between the people who made the movie and it's such a wonderful feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So before we get like into the movie itself, Candace, I do want to ask you as an opportunity to talk about myself. Um, I <laughs> want to ask you about we're of a similar age and of similar interest. And I've read your book and we're very much of similar interest and like even more than I assumed that we were of pop culture of music of time you're both like cool kids like we you're both like <laughs> genuinely cool is what i think that's the nicest thing thank you but when the state was on I've, i have to have talked about this on the show at some point but like when the state was on and the state was a sketch comedy group that was believed was based out of nyu from the late 80s and then they got a show on mtv eventually which is how they became known to many people and then Almost everyone from the state became someone that people recognize now, even if they don't know them by name. Michael Showalter, who's in this movie, just directed Tammy Faye movie. That's right. Like, these are people who, like, have a grasp on popular culture. But when they were on TV, they were not received critically very well. Mm -hmm. But for me... I was like whole, I remember it was like, had to be 93 or 94. I had to be mm -hmm. 10 or 11. And I saw these people and they were my Monty Python. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I was just like, mm -hmm. these are fucking cool kids, like capital C cool kids who are, you know, in and of New York college comedy. <laughs> I didn't even know the weight that that carried at that time, but I just knew that these were important people who somehow got everything that was going on in my brain. Like, what was the state? This was written by uh, Michael Showalter, who was in the state, directed by David Wayne, who was one of the founding members, and many of the cast have some overlap. So what was the state for you, Candace, and what did it mean to you pre-Wet Hot American Summer? So I have to give a shout out to my friend Liz who was my best friend in middle school and is still a really close friend of mine. And 
she's like probably my oldest friend. And she was the person who often turned me on to a lot Mm. of things that I wouldn't have found on my Mm. own. And the state was absolutely one of those things. And so we were a couple years older. I was maybe like 13 or 14 when the state was on MTV. And I used to watch it with Liz and her brother James at their house Mm -hmm. in their basement for many hours. (laughs) And um, I would say like I wasn't a huge fan of comedy as a kid. Like So there was Kids in the Hall, which I grew to love Mm -hmm. later on, but I didn't really watch it that much when it was on. And so I feel like The State was the first kind of like sketch comedy show that I really related to and that I really enjoyed Mm -hmm. watching. And I did kind of feel like it was the sketch comedy of my -hmm. generation, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's why it was so relatable to me. And and it was absolutely one of those things that like my friend group continued to watch. And and back then, like you would just like hope for reruns to come on because it wasn't like, they eventually released it on DVD, but probably not till like 10 years later or something, you know? Yeah, it was 2009. (laughs) Wow, so that's even longer. Yeah, it was really difficult to find and, and to watch unless you had like taped episodes, you know, on your VCR, which we probably did at some point. But like, you know, it was definitely one of those things that my kind of like friend group in high school would quote a lot and come back to a lot. And um, I still even say like when my kid had a goldfish a couple years ago, <laughs> I would always be like, I'm Don Law. I'll feed you fish. <laughs> Which is like a Michael Schalter bit from the state. It's like no one in my home knows what that means. But like oh it just God. brought me joy to be able to say it, you know. <laughs> it's so funny because like the text of the state, right? They had three seasons. I think the last one was kind of scattered for some reason. And I think like the impact, not that anyone is asking to pit these two things against each other, but like the impact of like the state versus the impact of Kids in the Hall, like Kids in the Hall, like I think like as a text is more remembered and quoted, Mm -hmm. but as an entity that went out into the world and Mm. shaped pop culture, like the state has its hands in everything still like Hmm, contemporaries they never went away they were always making stuff and it's not i mean dave full obviously all the kids in the hall had been doing stuff throughout i'm not this isn't a competition but like the kids in the hall all kind of scattered you know and i feel like they never got like i love these guys like i grew up watching the kids in the hall i didn't watch the state because i was too young for it when it was out but like the kids in the hall shaped me as a person so like Mm. no disrespect to the kids in the hall but like oh no i I love the kids in the hall yeah yeah but those five years that they were making that show like they never approached that kind of relevancy again no 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 and it's incredibly fascinating and like just like the places where you see all of these faces who are in this movie and the people who are around the state i mean you see them all like kevin allison has been running risk the storytelling podcast since before podcasts were popular since like 2010 i think 2009 2010 like these are people who are doing Hmm. stuff in every medium like i feel like i owe them everything and i i have just like great big-hearted appreciation for them so like them making this movie and again it's not them because it's only a handful of them but like it's you know if you grew up with them you're like oh those are my people Mm -hmm. so this this movie is just like a love letter to revel in for people who that was important for oh absolutely yeah so it was 2001 yes right Mm -hmm. yeah so i was 21 that year and i think that that was that weird time of my life that's like in between adolescence and adulthood and you know i had just moved out on my own and was like in a new city and like trying to figure out 
who the fuck I was and all this. And like, I remember, you know, I have this recollection of seeing the movie theater, but as I was reading about it, it seems like it was such a limited release. (laughs) Like it did terrible at the box office. So I was second guessing myself. I'm like, did I actually see this in the movie theater? (laughs) I don't remember. It was so long ago. But I remember just feeling like home watching this movie Mm. because like all those people were so familiar to me and their humor was so familiar. And I just felt like, oh, these are my people. Like, you know, it was just a really great experience back then. Sarah, what's your relationship with the movie? Yeah, so similar to Dazed and Confused, which we talked about last summer, this was a movie that I, you know, as an indoor kid, if you will, (laughs) brushed off (laughs) by basically being, it looks like it's about teens having sex and being friends with each other. And both of these things are unavailable to me. So no thank you will make me sad. (laughs) And... And so I saw it finally when I was 22, I think, for the first time. And it was a movie that friends of mine loved. I mean, I do think it kind of like the whole story of how it went from completely bombing when it first came out to becoming, I think, essentially kind of a defining piece of culture for kind of millennial, exennial people is so interesting. And it feels like it just gradually made its way around by word of mouth, um, as well as by the people who had been in it becoming progressively more famous. But I remember, yeah, just seeing it and like being like, oh, like this is completely different from what I thought it was. And just feeling like something I've been thinking about lately is just like silliness. Like Mm. we need more media that is silly. Mm. And like this movie is just it's silly. And then and now I think it's like I've seen it three times. Two times have been with Candace. So it is also one of those movies that is like of a friendship. And to me, it's like. (laughs) Of the Candace verse. Into the Candace verse. <laughs> I love that you called this calendar event Wet Hot American Candace. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Candace is the only person I could probably do that with. Of our guests, so. It flows. It flows. Yeah, it, does. it sure yeah. did. I really didn't. I didn't appreciate until this watch that this movie draws from various inspirations like Dazed and Confused. It draws from like meatballs, like the kind of like sex comedy. Sleepaway camp, very much in the fashions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Totally draws from the aesthetic of Sleepaway camp. And it honors plot arcs from each, which is really Mm -hmm. interesting because it could draw from all those things, but then decide to only focus on like one group. It focuses Mm -hmm. on like, you know, the guy who wants to get laid, who everyone thinks has had sex with everyone because he tells everyone that he's had sex with everyone but he's had sex with no one it focuses on the indoor kids it focuses on like the romance of an elder indoor kid and david hyde pierce (laughs) it focuses on like the people who take theater too seriously uh which i think is really fantastic it's like amy poehler why didn't you have auditions earlier in the summer if you're gonna do this uptight i understand that it's a joke i do do you think they ended up at bennington sarah as a bennington expert do you think one of these Mm -hmm. one of those two characters ended up at bennington well, Bradley Cooper's married now, so he doesn't have time for that kind of shenanigan. <laughs> and I I wonder what Bennington's dance program was like in 1981. These are the things I have to nitpick about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate that it takes you on each of those journeys. And again, like it's silly. Like it's not like we don't go super deep on those journeys, but we follow the arc of each of them down to the fact that like, I don't know that Carolyn had seen this prior to last night. Maybe she had, but we watched it together and we both cried at the part where the indoor kids realize that they're all best friends yeah. like and they say that they're best friends Aww. and then the, the Bork and Mindy kid says nanu nanu <laughs> like both immediately started crying <laughs> so I feel like you know I mean this is like clearly a movie made 
about camp by indoor kids so i'm not surprised that yeah. it honored that so hard that's the charm but i really appreciated that i also like this has been a repeated topic between candace and i while i've been here like i am bad at boundaries most people know this and if you don't then you have perhaps taken advantage of that fact and think this is just what all relationships should be like <laughs> but like this is like like it's in a very funny way but in a real way like this movie does have like teen girls stating boundaries in a way you don't normally see and like it's funny but it's still pretty aspirational like for example like victor like rushes back having endangered a lot of children to like try and have sex with abby and she's like this is gonna sound shallow but what was your name again <laughs> and he's like you have no idea what i went through to spend time with you and she's like you snooze, you lose. <laughs> <laughs> I've been chewing gum with someone else. <laughs> She's also um, making out with like a 12-year-old when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> These are like the only jokes that I'm like, well, you probably wouldn't do that today. And that's probably good. But like, whatever. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of jokes in which adults end up with children. Which, yeah. <laughs> by the way, resonated with my actual high school experience. So, yeah. you know, they were, they were joking about a reality we all knew. Right. And Oof. like maybe that just seemed sort of absurdist more in, in a time when we had talked about that less. But we have now. So good for us. And, and then also, I would say the kind of overarching story, like if there's a protagonist, I think it's Michael Showalter's character who's like pursuing this romance with Katie the whole time, who's like this like very pretty girl who's in a camp romance with Paul Rudd's character and you know it progresses in kind of all the classic ways we know from movies and she like loses the zero and gets with the hero and then the next morning she's like you know i know that my boyfriend is kind of lame and like you're cute too but he's like really hot and he's cut and i'm interested in sex right now cuz i'm 16 so Sorry, bye. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That's so great. It's so good. It's perfect. I know. There's nothing else like it. Michael Showalter's face the whole time. She's like giving him that, that speech. He's just like, huh. Okay. Yeah. And he's all it's like getting ready to introduce her to his parents. We, we talked a lot last night when we were watching it with Patrick about like kind of the manipulation of time and how like all these continuity things on IMTP where it's like, no, no, this was purposeful that they were sort of manipulating and messing around with time that like, like when they all take the trip into town right, and right, right. <laughs> they progressively do harder and harder <laughs> drugs in this small main town as though it's like a big city where they're like meeting a heroin dealer in an alley <laughs> and then they're in like a junkie house alex can you meet with like a guy with a big bag of heroin in an alley in small town maine inquiring minds want yeah. to know well you know it's interesting like i hate to make this a downer and candace i know where you're going it's like it's like the joke is this all happens within an hour etc cetera, etc cetera. but like when yeah. this movie came out that joke was extremely funny obviously it still is funny because it's like a time yeah. it's more a time joke more than anything else but like since maine has gotten swallowed by the opioid epidemic yeah you can yeah so again it's like wow what an innocent time when like you couldn't right. buy a big bag of heroin in an alley in a small town by a summer yeah. camp right right when this came out the year that portland maine was being identified as the epicenter of the oxycontin addiction yeah. so yes the joke works it still works but 
the main that we know now versus the main we knew in 2001 or 2000 around when sort of this was being thought about a uh, very different place. Yeah. And also that it was 1981. Yes. You know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's what I love about New England. The shortest possible route to a downer. <laughs> and by downer, I mean something depressing is like very short. So quick. <laughs> we get there. No problem. <laughs> yeah. Alex and I know that well. The last time I drove through Connecticut, I was like, this has got to be the most haunted state just by like the ratio of like haunting to square miles like of anywhere. <laughs> oh, easy. Yeah, I really give it to people when I say I'm from Connecticut and, and there's like a hint of presumption in their voice that I'm rich. And I'm like, you just have no fucking idea how Connecticut works. They're like <laughs> super rich people like juxtaposed with extreme poverty everywhere. <laughs> like, Oh, yeah. man. Whenever people are like, I love that town that you grew up in. Like, it's so cute. I'm like, I remember when I was a kid, some guy got his tongue cut out because he snitched to the cops. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And they're like, yeah, exactly. That's so cute. <laughs> also, Alex, I remember once like you told me a story about your hometown where like the preamble was that it had been taken over by bikers at one point. And that wasn't the story. It was the setup for the story. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. It's so fun. It's funny because I'm like realizing there's this whole you know, like now that like there's this huge part of like modern biker culture that's just like loving cops. And it's such a funny thing to me yeah. because like bikers theoretically were outlaws. But then I realized that they're all kind of fascists together. So like, mm -hmm. and I, you you know, I grew up with the fascist bikers. <laughs> I think they were just they were just everywhere and terrible. New England, buy a sweater. Don't look around too closely. You will witness something <laughs> and not know whether you should testify about it. <laughs> Did either of you do any camp things when you were kids? Like, even if it wasn't like a eight week <laughs> sleepaway camp? I went to day aughts and foughts and crafts camp and I was quite an accomplished little basket weaver for a couple summers. Wow. How long is that? Like, what is that? Is that like a, you get dropped off for a week sort of thing? Or what is that? Yeah, a couple weeks. Yeah. Well, you enough. don't get dropped off. You go every day and then your mom picks you up at the end of the day. So you don't have to change in front of witnesses. <laughs> 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 or shower. Yes. God forbid. Yeah. yeah. I was in the same emotional yeah. place. No, I never did sleepaway camp. I did Girl Scout camp a couple mm. times, which was like a weekend sleepaway thing. Yes. And all I remember of that was that we had to have a mess kit, which I had to purchase from the Army Navy store. Mm. What? It's like a little kit where you get like a couple little frying pans and like a little metal cup and like spatula that all sort of snap in together because mm. the whole thing was that like you had to cook your own food over a fire. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah. And all I remember from that was this song, actually just one verse of this song that I will sing for you now. And it goes... I don't want to go to Girl Scout camp. Gee, mom, I want to go back where the toilets flow. Gee, mom, I want to go home. <laughs> <laughs> it has multiple verses, but I only remember the one about the toilets flow because that. they had latrines there, naturally. Mm. I asked on Twitter, on from our Twitter account, like who went to camp and what their experience was. And it was, you know, of people who seem to have gone away for at least a week away, if not more. Seems like a lot of queer people had some revelations oh. while they were at camp, which is great because, you know, that's the positive 
direction it can go in. I like mm-hmm. hearing that. A lot of people went to religious camps yeah. and had mixed experiences. It seems like you could mm. still have some queer revelations at a religious camp. Not surprising. Yeah. Yeah. I, Sarah, I went to similar kind of like day camp for similar reasons. Didn't want to change in front of witnesses. Day bidet camp, if you will. <laughs> I didn't do well with like uh, kids I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I didn't handle harassment very well. I, I was a crumbler in the face of these sorts of things. Which most kids are expected to do. So Yeah, and I was just like, I don't, I would prefer not to. And I don't think going to camp like four weeks as a sleepover thing was on the table for us because that required some, you know, money and we didn't mm-hmm. have any of that. But yeah, I went to some, but I remember like I was a kid who really wanted to like, I think we talked about this in our last episode, Sarah, like I was a kid who like, like mostly just wanted to impress adults. Mm-hmm. And I remember like my counselor seemed like a hundred years old. I was 10, maybe she was maybe 16 years old at the most. And I remember telling her about the band temple of the dog. Oh man. And she was like, there is not a band where all of those people are in the same band together. There were Eddie Vedder and Chris Cornell and Pearl Jam guys. Like that's not a thing that happened. And I was like, no, it, it is. And I came the next day with a little, Casio boombox like Lloyd Dobler and and had it had the tape in and played it at her like a fucking asshole and um that's my only memory from camp was uh proving I was right to an adult <laughs> Eddie Vedder related okay so two things a I think that there should be like some kind of a portable like speaker boombox whatever called the Dobler because that's what everyone of a certain <laughs> yeah. age thinks of Somebody get on that. Why yeah. does that not exist? Make the dobbler. Free idea. I'm just chucking them out into the crowd. And then B, Alex, I'm going to push back against you being an asshole in that story. Because like <laughs> kids today have a harder time experiencing this. Like I think this still happens, but it's rarer. Where like as a kid, you know something and an adult is like, no, it's not true. And you're like, no. I know it's true. And if only there was some kind of, I don't know, dumping ground for information that I could easily (laughs) bring up and show to you to prove that I'm right. Right. Yeah. Mm. You just had to sit and not knowing for some period of time. Go home, get your physical media, bring it the next day. Speaking to like a plot point that you brought up earlier, Candace, and this very randomly ended up being the third Molly Shannon thing I watched in a row in the past Mm. two days. So that's delightful. But the one thing that absolutely resonated in this movie, kind of to the point that you just brought up, Sarah, with like an adult not believing a child, Mm -hmm. is just like how many situations I feel like I was in as a teenager or adolescent where the the adult was emotionally not equipped. The adult in charge was emotionally not equipped for the situation. Don't undermine me. <laughs> <laughs> this whole movie shows that. And then one of the whole plot points with Molly Shannon, like the whole arc is us seeing her be consoled by children. But I feel like I was in that situation an unreasonable or maybe extremely reasonable amount of times as a child where you're like, oh, not just are like the adults ill-equipped, but we have to be there for them, I guess. Because <laughs> there's no adult who's coming to fix this. It's just us and arts and farts and crafts. Yeah. Do you remember like one of your first instances where you looked and you're like, oh, no, like... <laughs> They said they were in charge, but they're not. (laughs) I mean, that so defines my entire childhood that that was actually like the norm for me. So so there was never a moment where it was like, oh, no, they said they were in charge and now they're not. It was always like, right, they're not in charge. And (laughs) I got to figure this out. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. I think to a lesser extent in my life, but like I still like and this is happening for me this week, like whenever I'm with friends 
who have kids are just observing adults I know interacting with their children. I'm like, oh, it's actually like weird or not the norm to be so incredibly emotionally dysregulated with your children that you're just like (laughs) flying off the handle at unpredictable moments for no apparent reason. And, like, it's the kid's job to try and, like, go, like, shh, shh, shh. Right, 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 right. You're okay. Right. You're okay. <laughs> it's almost like a cliche at this point to even equate the two, but it's like, are you an old soul or are you an adult who had to console Molly Shannon through her uh, divorce? I swear to God, old souls are a con invented by difficult parents to yeah. excuse the fact they're putting too much on their kids. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I, I think it's certainly after my parents split, like I always had to do some lifting for adults and then probably arguably before that too. But I don't know when it clicked, but I know that it clicked certainly after being in a situation where I had to console a Molly Shannon through a divorce and I was like 13. On some level, I thought that that was a superpower because I was like, I can connect with adults and like they take me seriously. And it's like only eventually in retrospect that you're like, maybe uh, it shouldn't have been my primary goal to be connecting with adults all the time. Like maybe that was something had gone wrong there. Yeah. (laughs) In my case, it was most of the time I feel like it was less sort of like emotional consoling and more that both of my parents in different ways were very adolescent, like stubbornly adolescent. Mm -hmm. And I grew up with my mom. I did not grow up with my dad, but I had in various times, like some relationship with him. And I do have one memory of when I was like 15 and I was at the mall with my friend Amy and we could not find a ride home. And I made the very stupid mistake of trying to call my dad and being like, oh, like I kind of know my dad, maybe he'll pick us up. So he came to the mall And he was like, I want to have a drink. So he gave us, my dad's thing was always just like pulling 20s out of his pocket to like, he was like a real like mafioso type fella. So he's like, here's some money, get some dinner. And then after you eat, we'll go. So Amy and I were like, yeah, cool. So we just like got a dinner at this restaurant called Knickerbockers while my dad sat at the bar. And then after we ate, we went up to him and he was like, I'm not ready to go yet. And he gave us each like 20 more dollars. And he's just like, go shopping for a little while. And we were like, all right. You know, like when you're that age, you're just kind of like, cool. Some adult is just giving me cash. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to go to Spencer's and buy some. Sure. Of course. T-shirts or lava lamps or whatever the fuck. (laughs) And so we hung out for like another hour and then we went back to the bar. And at this point, he's like sufficiently hammered. Mm -hmm. And he has this crowd of like men around him that he probably vaguely knows. We went over to try to get him to leave. and, And he was like, oh, this is my daughter. This is my daughter's friend, Amy. And then he pulled Amy in and gave her a kiss on the lips. And I was fucking mortified. And I was like, oh my God, this Uh, is not okay. And like, my dad is no stranger to bad behavior, but that moment I was like, we got to get the fuck out of here. And also, like, he's really drunk now and I don't want him driving us home. We ended up walking like three quarters of the way home. And then a small town cop picked us up and drove us the rest of the way. One of those memories where you're just like, oh my god, this is not an adult. Like, no. oh my god, I love that. What's the name of the essay that you wrote about your dad? Uh, the man who put down clay. Oh, it's so fucking good. I recognize this man very well. Like, I have a lot of experience with this man. Oh my god, I feel that story so hard. Yeah, yeah. just yeah. how many experiences are just like children watching children. And even though, like, the children who are watching the children look like adults, they're really just children is alarming. Yeah. 
Yeah. They're just children who can't fall down the way they used to. Because <laughs> they'll break a hip. I used to be a counselor like at a four-day sleepaway thing for sophomores. So many different things happened that I loved it so much. It was always like a really great experience. But one time somebody while on like a volunteer trip, there was like Mexican food at the cafeteria and all these kids are from Maine and have never had spices that are not like black pepper or, you know, salt or (laughs) garlic powder. And I remember I was like, it's hot, man. Like they're serving like rice and beans to like kids from like Presque Isle, like kids who've, who've like never been anywhere. And I was like, okay, let's see what happens. And so we went to this volunteer thing and this girl just shattered her pants. Like she just shattered her pants at the Aww. volunteer thing. And I remember for some reason, I have no idea. It was like one of those things, like we were out on a trail. It was like me and one other adult, quote, heavy quotes adult. And this happened. And I remember like s- straight up spidey sense, like my brain registered a bad thing was happening before I even registered the bad thing was happening. And I just locked in and saw that this girl was actively shitting in her shorts and I just like what like just like (laughs) emergency walked up very quick and like put my hand on her shoulders like hey let's go over here for a second (laughs) and then she like it registered what had happened to her like she was like oh something's weird and then she realized what had happened and we pulled her (laughs) off and like one of her friends came and helped out and like it all ended up in the long run being okay but I told the other adult, I was like, you got to handle this over here because I'm handling this over here. So this girl like cleaned up as much as she could. And then I drove her to, I had to drive her and her friend back to the campus. And we, the only like first place we could stop where she could wash up was a liquor store. Oh. And so <laughs> brought her to this liquor store where there was just like wild disarray going on throughout the like entire place. And I was like, this is in this person's memory for the rest of their like i was present for a totally feral moment in this person's life where they like again never left their part of maine had to go to a liquor store to wash up because like the camp didn't think properly about giving these kids like specific kinds of food before their hot volunteer activity and that's just like in this person's brain like that's what camp is is it's like go out and have exotic terrifying experiences (laughs) at school oh my god camp But also, like, I mean, I heard that story years ago, and I've always, to me, it's like part of the book of Alex, because I feel (laughs) like it's also a wonderful thing to, like, encounter a safe adult in your life. Like, who knows what the adults in this kid's life were like generally. But, like, it's not like there's a wild surplus of safe, calm adults who can, like, (laughs) spidey sense something happening and just, like immediately spring in action and be like okay we're gonna do this and then we're gonna go here and we're gonna take care of it and it's fine and we're just gonna deal with it oh my god yeah because that could have been so much worse mm-hmm. yeah t- well so people could have gotten like angry or like blamed her or like whatever mm-hmm. and just like it was so i mean oh my god i just remember like i don't know where the like autopilot instructions were beaming into my brain, but like some divine power was like, here's how you're going to handle this. Here's what we're going to do. We're not going to freak out. We're not going to acknowledge. And yeah, I, I've been very lucky with some of the organizations I've worked with for like the kind of adults that it draws in because, because mm. yeah, I think you're right, Sarah. I don't ever really think about that aspect of it, but like if you are fortunate to not have 
you know, the Molly Shannon children overseeing you. And maybe sometimes it'll be like one of the first competent adults or one of the first, like a similar story happened when a couple of years later at the camp, one of the women also queer and I were at like one of the dances and we wore our, like it happens at the end of May, early June, we wore our like pride related shirts and a kid, this is, you know, maybe five or six years ago comes up and identifies us and is like, can you help me with my binder? And there is a strong chance in that person's life, like at home at the high school that I know they probably go to that, like there being adults around who you can identify as adults who are going to like help you with that in a non-questioning way now more than then is rare. So like the opportunity, yeah, it's like kind of a lovely blessing to have an opportunity to be like a not shitty adult in kids' lives. Speaking of kind of that, can we talk about how fucking hot the scene between Michael Ian Black and Bradley Cooper yes. is? It's like, yes. it's so sincere. Like, it's funny, <laughs> but like the joke is on Zach Orth and whoever the other guy is who's like, you know, McKinley's never been with a girl. Like, they're the butt of the joke. And then it's yes. like, they're the butt of the joke because this like beautiful, steamy, like age of innocence love scene is happening. And that itself doesn't feel like it's played for a laugh to me. I agree. And they are committing. Like maybe the socks is like the only yeah, part. Totally. Like when they cut to the tube socks, yes. but the rest of it is like, it's so tender. Yeah. It's so romantic. Like I just someday I hope I find a love like that. <laughs> <laughs> Like that and the scene that I referenced earlier where all the kids, the indoor kids reveal mm -hmm. to each other that they're each other's best friends are the two, I feel like, sincerest moments. Maybe the two only like deeply sincere moments mm -hmm. in sort of in this case, it is used to create like an additional juxtaposition on the joke of like those other two not getting it. That's later played upon when they give a chaise lounge that is still in a crate and barrel box. <laughs> and you think that they're going to like be fucking like 80s bullies, but they give them a really, a really nice wedding gift. <laughs> Which I assume they don't take out of the box because they're like, we don't have time to get whatever is supposed to be yes. in here. Just make a box. <laughs> Brookback Mountain hadn't happened yet, had it? No. No, that was like when I was finishing high school. This hilarious comedy has like maybe the tenderest gay moment in American cinema. <laughs> that moment. It's up there, man. Okay, I feel like we need to really dedicate a segment in this to Christopher Maloney. Yes. Tell us about him. Tell us about the character he plays and why he's significant. Okay. So Christopher Maloney in his greatest role ever plays the camp chef and he is a Vietnam War vet and he has a great costume, which is just like a purplish shirt with the sleeves cut off and it's like a bare midriff shirt and he's wearing like a really dirty white <laughs> apron over his jeans and he's got a bandana tied around his head and he's got a big beard and a big tattoo of Jesus on his arm, like Jesus on the cross. So Gene's thing, he seems like very sort of serious and, and kind of severe and uh, he works in the kitchen with one of the counselors. I don't remember his name, but I think the actor's name is A.D. Miles. And Gene has several like Freudian type slips where he's <laughs> like, get the bug juice. It's next to my bottle of dick cream. <laughs> and Adrian Miles like, what did you say? And he's like, stick team. I said, my, I'm going to go play stick team. My bud's on the stick team. Go away. Leave me alone. And like... <laughs> He just has like several moments like that. And then it comes out later on that he has some sort of relationship with a can of vegetables. 
that can talk to him. <laughs> this is this is probably like the one thing in the movie that's incredibly unrealistic. Like just it's completely on another level of surrealism is mm-hmm. that there's this talking can of vegetables. And then in the end, he has this sort of come to Jesus moment where he realizes that he's going to show his true self. And he makes this speech to the whole group of counselors and kids in the mess hall that he's, I don't know, I can't even remember verbatim what he says, but in the end, he openly admits that he's going to hump a fridge. (laughs) And then A.D. Miles wheels the fridge out and he sort of mounts the side of this fridge, which is like perhaps on a rolly cart. And he just slowly humps it and it gets wheeled away and everyone cheers and it's just quite a cinematic moment so gene like i had several teachers like gene (laughs) the same temperament the same maybe the can was talking maybe gene had seen some shit in the war and that is what was doing the talking yeah and these are always the first teachers i think about whenever people are like, we we should arm teachers because that'll solve everything. We should arm <laughs> teachers. And I always think of the genes who were like one God. third of my teachers, like one third of my teachers had this weird temperament of whatever's going on with gene lots of teachers are heroes but a lot of them are genes and uh uh, i don't want them to have guns (laughs) yeah yeah one of my teachers was an aikido master so you know just stick with that (laughs) (laughs) and gene's beard is in flux throughout this entire movie clearly like sleepaway camp where they had to shoot with a police officer who had definitely shorn his mustache and then had to wear whatever it is like uh shoe polish it looks like just grease paint yeah, yeah. Exactly. that happens in this where like clearly there were reshoots and then gene has a fake beard and it's very rewarding to watch happen yeah gene is great it's v- it's very of that time and like you saying that you had lots of teachers like that yeah so i just feel like those people don't exist anymore that like type of person or they if they do they're just pretty old now and like they don't kind of play the same role in our lives but like i had like my brother's dad he wasn't a vietnam vet but he you know he was like had been a hippie like a real hippie in the 60s and like had this kind of long hair and this big beard and like he was a carpenter and he'd built this like crazy loft apartment attached to his mother's house and we'd sometimes go stay there and like when we watched tv when the commercials came on we had to close our eyes and cover our ears because we weren't allowed to listen to the commercials because they were brainwashing you know <laughs> like i just there were just people we had in our lives like that at the time and that was totally common there was nothing weird about it. It was just like, oh, this quirky sort of person, you know. Does anyone want to speak to the romance between Janine Garofalo and uh, David Hyde Pierce? Sarah? Yeah, I mean, there are so many plots in this. I feel like Janine Garofalo and David Hyde Pierce had to be like among the most famous people in the cast when this was mm-hmm. in production. She'd been in Mystery Men by then. <laughs> I mean, gosh, what can I say except that I like it? And this, I mean, this brings to mind that when we were watching this last night, Candace was keeping a tally of how often they use the like plate breaking sound effect. Yeah. <laughs> Which, how, was it like four or five times we heard it? I tallied five. Yeah. I don't like I might have missed one. Yeah. I can't say why it's funny. I can just say like this is just the kind of joke that I like, which is like Kenny Garofalo is the camp director. She's like our most adult adult. And like she has things under control, I think. Like she feels like a pretty safe person, but she's also very inexpert at a lot of things, including the art of seduction. And so <laughs> 
David Hyde Pierce's character is an associate professor <laughs> who lives next door to, but essentially inside of the camp. And like, you don't, you're like, just don't worry about it. He just lives there. And he's an astrophysicist and she's a camp director. And so there's just a scene where like, they're both coming up to the school nurse and Janine Garofalo is like, where would I get books on astrophysics? And then he comes up to her, he's like, where would I find books on camp directing? And then we see them both at the library later on and she's in the astrophysics section and he's in the camp directing section. And like, that's my kind of joke. <laughs> Why is that funny? I don't know. Yeah, it's funny for so for so many reasons. But like, do we need to quantify it even? Like, it's just funny. Just experience it. Yeah, we can't say why anything's funny. And then their relationship progresses really mm -hmm. quickly over the course of this day. And by the next morning, she reveals that she's pregnant. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that's another way that this movie sort of messes with time. But I think it's poking fun at the sort of expectation that we are to suspend our disbeliefs when we're watching a movie as to like how fast things have to move in order for the movie to do what it needs to do in the time it needs to yeah. do it. And, you know, this movie does that a lot. It makes it like twice as funny, you know? Oh, I was just going to ask who you most identify with of the characters. Probably the indoor kids, you know, because I feel like I still am one of those kids in my heart. I love the speech the kid, I can remember no detail because it's me, but I remember I love the speech the kid gives where he explains that he is a dungeon master. You may recall him from having to lunch with underwear on his head. Mm -hmm. And it's just so proud and bold of explaining what he is into and inviting all of these girls into it. And clearly none of them are into it. Uh, what is he like? You have cast an enchantment spell over my heart. So... <laughs> Oh, actually, no, but also the radio kid yes. who hasn't taken a shower all summer because what do I love? Radio or things like it. What do I hate? Showering. Bingo. That kid is hilarious. The beekeeper. Yeah. Candace, what about you? I mean, I'm definitely not any of the women because I feel like they're all hot yeah. and I wasn't like I didn't identify as hot as a teenager as to no. whether or not I was like I can't decide that even if you're hot you're not allowed to identify as hot because then people yeah. will stone you to death <laughs> yeah so on some level probably coop just like this unlucky in love sort of like sincere mm -hmm. person I guess but I don't know on another level like I feel like I over-identify with Ken Marino because he's Italian. <laughs> like, I just, he just feels like one of my people. The most sleepaway camp character in this movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just poured into those jean shorts. But now I feel like I identify with uh, Janine Garofalo's character a lot. And I was saying to Sarah, like, so we live in a very, like, quaint little neighborhood with lots of front porches. And every morning during the summer, like, the kids get up early and they're all running around. And, like, I sit on the porch with my coffee and as the kids are running back and forth I feel like at least once a morning I'm like you're not supposed to be out of your bunks <laughs> you're in trouble <laughs> what about you Alex I think I, I yeah I relate to Coop the most just like thinking you know the good guy's gonna win this is gonna be great I'll be as earnest as possible and everything will be okay <laughs> and uh you know, that sometimes works and sometimes does not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, oh, we haven't really talked about Paul Rudd yet. <laughs> oh, yes. I can't believe it. Not at all. It's incredible. I mean, this movie is so rich that it's like you can be an hour and be like, oh, yeah, Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd is like, I remember as a kid, like having seen him in Clueless and as a tween, I was like, this guy's hot and he's funny. Why isn't he in more stuff? Like, I think a lot of people knew that Paul Rudd was great before he became like whatever he is now you mm -hmm. know it's like sometimes it takes a while for 
the industry, I guess, to figure out what teen girls already know. But like, yeah, we were watching this last night and I was like, I wish I could be an idiotic hot boy. That just seems like the life. It truly does. <laughs> he's played so well, like his swings, his mood swings of like when he's getting what he wants, everything is great. And then like immediately is like, you're stifling me or like yeah, Sarah just did, you're like, suffocating me, Katie, giving the finger <laughs> to her right after they were making out. See like, you in macrame. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the way he swings around that post. I mean, it's like no one makes giving the finger look more fun than Paul Rudd in this. I know. I was saying last night, so in the one scene where he like finishes his breakfast and just throws the plate on the floor and Janine Garofalo is like, Andy, pick it up. And he's like, I'll do it later. And she's like, pick it up. You know, and he just like so begrudgingly, like so much, <laughs> so like so overacted in that scene, like just hating having to do this task. And it's really funny because like he's probably like 30 years old playing a 17 year old who is acting like the way my five year old acts when I ask him to pick right, him up. Right, and right, it's totally. so I feel like he deserved an Oscar for that performance. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. I started watching the, there were like two series that came out after this. There was one that takes place as a prequel. So everything that leads up to this moment. And then one that takes place 10 years later hmm. and Paul Rudd is in both, but he's in the 10 years later one. And like, it's obviously sort of like an ongoing joke that people are very familiar with. That like Paul Rudd still looks great now he's like yeah. in his 50s mm -hmm. still looks exactly the same and that's especially fun with like how unhinged everyone else allows themselves to look as at this point like 40 somethings playing mm -hmm. 28 year olds which is an even funnier joke than like late 20 somethings playing teenagers as like people in their mid 40s so that's just typical really yes and then seeing <laughs> yeah. seeing them all contrasted against paul rudd like must have been it's you know Good for them. Paul Rudd makes me feel like Francis McDormand in Raising Arizona. He's like, he's just a little angel straight down from heaven. <laughs> oh my God. They all look, yeah, it's like Paul Rudd and Elizabeth Banks look great. And everyone else looks like regular humans because they're improv people. Like that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happens. Elizabeth Banks does look incredible. Yeah. Everyone looks great, by the way. Like Michael Showalter also looks great, but in a different way. Yes, exactly. Totally. I agree. <laughs> Absolutely. And in the 10 years later sequel, Ben, the Bradley Cooper character, is played by Adam Scott. And the joke is that he's had a nose job. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> so I, I saw the prequel series. I didn't realize that there was a sequel series. It's all fine. It's all fine. Yeah. Right. So like, yeah, to speak about, I mean, so this was a movie that like, you know, it came out it flopped. It gradually developed a following. Like I was reading a little bit of an oral history in Variety uh, right before we got on. And even when they were doing a 10 year anniversary DVD, they like talked to whoever owns it. And we're like, can we do like, like a featurette or like a little, you know, like just get some of the cast back together and do like a little bonus feature. And they were like, no, nobody buys this thing. Nobody cares. Don't do it. And it's interesting to think about like, how do you keep intellectual property alive and like now everything is getting adapted into a series just everything is a series i mean i feel like there are like mm. i mean there are there's like you know zola well zola is a movie based on a tweet thread but like <laughs> i think that at this moment like a tweet is being developed into a tv series somewhere oh i'm sure yeah <laughs> although to that point sarah like we're seeing the collapse of that right now which is so interesting like which is very exciting for me because i love it when things that i've been bitching about turn out to be bad ideas <laughs> <laughs> and I feel I really feel like 
making a prequel and sequel series to Wet Hot American Summer was like the beginning of that bubble. Mm. (laughs) Say more about that. (laughs) Like the fact that, you know, I mean, I'm glad that they did it because I'll watch these people do anything. I like spending time with these people. They're important. They were like childhood friends. I like spending Mm -hmm. time with them. So I'm going to watch it happen. Is it necessary? Like, was that a thing that Netflix had to invest some money in like several times? (laughs) Like, I think that that's how they helped create the illusion of their own supremacy that they're like, we can just like keep making series out of anything. Like anything can be a series. And people will continue to watch them because we're the streaming service. Oh, wait, what the fuck? What's happening? Scar, help me. Totally. (laughs) And then it just collapses in on itself. And then there's sort of like, I'm not going to say it's secondary drama. It's as primary as the drama, which is like, it seems like the first things that get cut when those collapses happen are like, queer series in series by people who are not, you know, white protagonists for the most part. I wonder why. And they're like, we got to keep making Stranger Things. We got to keep <laughs> making Stranger Things. But like, we got to cut every one of these. People got to watch these four identical children that no one can tell yeah. apart. <laughs> the, who all look like Winona Ryder. <laughs> <laughs> they're all slowly morphing into Winona Ryder. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I think the thing that like tends to work because it's just like, what works culturally for whatever reason i mean it's lazy but like it's like is this already a thing that like we know a lot of people are familiar with and they're going to show up for it yeah if we invest some money in it and does it cost like a lot of money to make and i would imagine that the wet hot american series prequel and sequel didn't cost a whole lot of money aside from the fact that bradley cooper showed up for the prequel he probably needed some cash i mean i was talking last night about and this is a recurring topic with us and a ton of people that like this is a 90 minute movie. I think it's actually 95 minutes, but like we, you don't get 90 minute movies anymore. It's either like 80 minutes or it's over two hours or it's a series. And you're like, this feels like it could have been a movie. We're here for 90 minute movies. Can we do like a speed round of things that we love? Sure, of course. Kick it off. Okay, I'll start. The phone, the phone, where's the fucking phone? <laughs> phone it's beautiful we were watching it and i was like i bet they only did this once because they're breaking a lot of stuff and i don't think they could afford to reset this no no yeah (laughs) yeah okay i'll go joel otrulio in the end go watching victor uh save the children from the raft where there clearly was not a budget to save the children from the raft so there's just a shot of joe going you're doing it you're really doing it he's doing it oh my god so good. You're saving them. <laughs> and all this, all the like scenes of the lead up to their peril is just like the raft supposedly hurtling towards the mm-hmm. drop off and it's never moving. <laughs> it's never moving. It's just anchored. Oh my, God. Yeah. my favorite shot, and I sent you both a screen grab of it immediately, is just Abby licking the spoon of, I believe, of her yogurt while she's looking over at Ken Marino and he's having a moment <laughs> thinking about it. There's so much disgusting tongue work in this movie. Yes. And like tongue, dairy, strangling spittle is one of the grossest things that I Ugh. come in contact with. And uh, she just does it and it's fucking great. Abby also goes to town on gum. Yes, goes real hard. A lot of tongue work in this movie. A lot of tongue kissing. And it's humid. Yeah. What else? I mean, the like iconic chase scene to turn me loose, where we have like just the beautiful absurdity of like Ken Marino (laughs) running. And then there's a hay bale on the road and he like, 
<laughs> and then he like dramatically <laughs> jumps over it. And I don't know, like that's again, like that's exactly my style of humor where it's like, I don't know. It's funny, too, because like this is a teen sex comedy that just has a distance from that because it's being made by adults and kind of for adults like this is not trying to pander to a teenage audience i don't think it's not a mean comedy like i feel like especially at this time comedy equal meanness to most people (laughs) and like i have no memory of any sketches from the state except for i'll feed you fish which i remember watching (laughs) with candace years ago (laughs) but like was that i mean is that in keeping with what the state was like no the state didn't punch down right the stuff that i remember and love from the kids in the hall it's either like character work like fran and gordon people like depicting their parents but doing so in a way that's like very detailed and in the end like pretty loving and Fran and Gordon emerge as like a very realistic portrait of a like married couple who are pretty miserable with each other, but are never going to move on. And just it's like it feels very tender Mm. in the end. And then just stuff like Mr. Heavyfoot, where the joke is that Dave Foley has really heavy feet and it's hard (laughs) for him to walk around. And that's the joke. <laughs> that's such a great point. Like, I imagine what informs that is the, are these are improv groups and like their mm-hmm. origin is in theater. Their interests are in sort of like telling stories and a lot of them are relationship based because of them. Whereas mm. like a stand up is like, it's like mm. you versus everyone. It's a really good point. Yeah. It's not mean. Yeah. There's no meanness, even like to your points about like, we think that we're going to have homophobic characters and there'll be some jokes there. And like the punchline of that is they are not, they're actually supportive in a way that you wouldn't expect. I just really think like the tenderness and the friendship among all these people comes through so much. And like, Mm -hmm. I mean, we were talking about it last night when, you know, when I was in high school, I made a movie with my friends, like a, how long was it? Maybe like 75 minutes. Like we wrote a script and we like filmed it and like. It's better than Clerks. (laughs) 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 But like when I watch Wet Hot American Summer, it really reminds me of the joy of making a movie with a bunch of people who I loved. And like all that sort of improvising, you know, like with Joe Latrulio's stuntman, you know, and, and how obvious they made that. And it was OK that it was obvious. Like, you know, like when we were making this movie, there was one we needed to get this shot done and some girl couldn't come because she was grounded, which is such a great <laughs> excuse. And so she had been wearing a wig in the movie. So we had just one other guy who wasn't in the scene put on her clothes and her wig and just act the scene as her in drag without even calling attention to it. And it's just like stuff like that. And I, I feel like when I watch this, I'm really reminded of that joy. Yeah, you get the sense that it's like a retreat. Yes. You know, I imagine being all of these people and going to whatever campground for a couple of weeks and like shooting, you know, as because of my life and Carolyn's life, which are centered now around like summer music camps as well, and is essentially adult summer camp. It's a different plane of reality. And you kind of feel that come through here. I feel like there's so much generosity in this because one of the other kind of dividing things, and maybe this is a stand up, ver- this has to be a stand up versus improv thing. Everyone gets to be funny. Like, Everyone gets Mm -hmm. to be funny and there's no sense of like hoarding the funniness or the funny scenes. And I think like I have a joke about like men who identify as funny, not who are funny, but who (laughs) identify as funny and who make it like a pillar of their identity. And then like (laughs) Seth Meyers made a joke recently about how like when a comedian thinks something you say is funny, he won't laugh. He'll go, that's funny. (laughs) And like there's just none of that here. And I think that also probably is based on this coming out of improv 
And if you're doing improv, then like you're fucking yourself if you are mm. trying to like hoard the funniness of the moment or if you're not letting mm. other people contribute to it and not kind of, you know, creating a situation where you're all pitching in and you've got this kind of, you know, Fleetwood Mac on the Tusk tour <laughs> vibe going where like everybody has something to do and mm. gets to create something greater than the sum of its parts. I don't know. It seems like such a like finger trap kind of a thing, you know, where like the harder you pull at it and the more you try and like keep the funniness for yourself, the less funny you become mm -hmm. and the more generous you are and the more you relax, the better the result. And like it, this just feels like that. Yeah, agreed. I love those indoor improv kids. Um, no dads in this movie. Not a father to be seen. David Hyde Pierce is a father to be in our final scene. Good for him. <laughs> that's a great that's, point. That's a good point. Good point. Yeah. That's a great point. Okay, so David Hyde Pierce is a father, depending on timelines in the fourth dimension. Who, <laughs> as far as you're concerned, Candace, why don't you kick us off? Who is the daddy? I think I got to go with Chris Maloney mm -hmm. for this. I mean, I just, every time I watch this, I'm just like more drawn to him and more impressed by this, by this role. <laughs> Gene. Gene is my daddy. That's great. Sarah, who strikes you? I'm going to say Katie, because again, I just like, especially at this point in my life, I love the scene where she's like, Coop, you're great. And last night was really special. But I really just want to bone like a hot idiot right now because I'm 16. So, okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> and just like knowing what you want and why you want it. Like, this is something that girls are not taught to do. And this character is a role model, like as silly and as sort of far from reality as this movie is. I always love it when a young female character is like having sex on purpose and it's like a positive, wholesome thing for her. And like, it's beautiful. <laughs> so my my second second place would be the girl in the cure shirt. Glad there's a girl in the cure shirt mm -hmm. who is like one of the members of the indoor kids. That's the kid I would have wanted to have been friends with. Mm -hmm. But I don't even know what the character's name is. But the character, again, this is an inappropriate joke at the end, the way it lands. But like the character who walks Molly Shannon through her uh, relationship issues with Judah Freelander, that kid who has to be the old soul, more resonant than I'd like it to be for being that age. Love that kid. But I love how he's there to listen. He's there to listen in a way that the other adults are incapable and I can relate. What do you think is your most quoted moment from this film? Oh, God. I mean, there's just so many, like let's say nine 30 and make it your beeswax to be there at yeah. nine 30. <laughs> that whole exchange. The one that stuck out this time more than before, I think, cause I was extra focused on the, the indoor kids is any dungeon master worth his weight in Gelding <laughs> always carries around his trusty 20 cider. Yes. <laughs> That's, that's great. That's great. <laughs> I don't even know if this is the exact line because I've not seen this movie enough times, but just like I'm writing in my journal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you to Candice for joining us in this episode. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing this episode. Thank you to Fresh Lash for providing the beats for this episode. Thank you, Patreon supporters, for helping us make it possible. Thank you uh, for listening. We really appreciate you. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. Next week, we're talking about the Bad News Bears. 
with Jason Diamond. It's a summer vibe over here this June. That's it, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Take care. You are good.